when you imagine your dream home, does a beautiful five-bedroom Dutch colonial style home with a boathouse included on the edge of a canal off Long Island sound appealing to live in? Would you question its price if it were a little too much in your budget for what you would be getting? What if there were murders that took place inside? Unexplained paranormal activity and the most unexplained activity of it all was the feeling of being possessed and acting in a way you wouldn't typically act upon. What sort of presence was residing in the home? Something trapped needing to get out? Something whose only purpose was to possess the minds of the people living within the home? A beautiful house with a far more sinister presence lurking within the walls. This is the unexplained story of the Amityville house. Welcome back, everybody. Sunday was Mother's Day, so we didn't have an episode come out, but we'll give you a Tuesday episode instead. Yeah, how does that sound? Let's start this off with our Facts with Calliope. Our FWK. So most people fall asleep within seven minutes. Do you believe that? No. No. Because it takes us four hours to even wind down once we're in bed. Dude, I can lay in bed for hours. Like even where I look at the clock, I'm like, dude, I've been laying here for six hours already. Oh my gosh. Why can't I sleep? (laughs) Even not on the phone. Yeah. Like no is off just laying there. Like yeah, with my eyes closed, even. What kind of clock is that that they have in in the schools? Oh, a TikTok clock. Yeah, so I have a TikTok clock on my wall, and there are nights where I'll lay in bed and just hear tick, 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 tick. And I will look, and it's like hours and hours and hours just pass, and I'm just laying there. So, the people that can actually fall asleep in seven minutes, how does it feel to be God's favorite? <laughs> I want to know if that study was done with only males. Right? I know. Yeah. Because do you know any males that lay there like that for no. hours? I don't like, I feel like every guy that I've ever dated or anything has been able to fall asleep before their head hits the pillow. Yeah. How? So now we need to know, can you guys fall asleep in seven minutes or does it take you hours? Like it does Jane and I, this was a highly requested episode. Everybody wanted to hear the Amityville horror story. Uh, I thought I knew what the story was about. Apparently I did not because after researching it, uh, left me not sure how I feel about it. So all right. I am actually interested in like the murder part of this. Yeah. So just to start off, there was a documentary on YouTube called The Real Amityville Horror. It was so good. So if any of you are interested in the Amityville house, the stories, you should watch this documentary because this this is where a lot of my information came from as well as Wikipedia and some other sites. But 
I learned so much off of the real Amityville horror documentary that you can find on YouTube. Plus there was an interview with Ronald DeFeo that was really good too, just to kind of hear in his own words information on this story. So is it possible for evil spirits to inhabit a human body and mind? 23-year-old Ronald Joseph DeFeo Jr. would claim it was. But why don't we rewind a little bit to try to see what led to the fateful night on November 13th, 1974, when Ronald massacred his entire family. I can't share. What do you think about that? That first sentence? Um, because it's never happened to me, uh, my mind has a hard time thinking that it's possible. However... I think it's possible, but not in like the way that I think it's interpreted. Cause like you think like, oh, an actual e- evil spirit. But I think the mind is something that is so complex that even something small can alter it. So even though it would like, it's not an actual evil spirit, I think your mind can make you actually think that that is what's happening. Yeah. And also I feel like as we get older, because you and I could even talk about the weird things that used to happen at our childhood home mm-hmm. um, and us, like we knew that's, that stuff was really happening yet as I'm getting older, I'm having a harder time um, not believing because I do believe in spirits and ghosts and all that, but having a, a harder time with like hauntings and stuff I believe in spirits and stuff but I am not religious like I think that there there is spirits but I don't think I don't think that there's like a heaven or hell that's just what I think um no I have a hard time believing that it's evil spirits that make people do evil things and again I have not thankfully had to experience anything like that I've never been put in a position to where I would know one way or another that's just as of right now where I stand. I don't think that evil spirits probably do something like that, but I do think that your mind would make you believe that that is what's happening. 100%. And isn't that kind of all a spirit would be anyways is something that you 100% believe is happening. Like, I mean, if you think an evil spirit is doing something, how, and you can feel them doing it. You can hear them talking to you, you know, like schizophrenia people actually hear voices and stuff or like even see people. Right. And talk to them and everything. And it's like, if you can see them and hear them and everything, how would you decipher what's real and what's not? Exactly. So this all started with Ronald DeFeo senior. He was a handsome man in his youth, which we will post pictures of what he looked like. As he got older, he was actually nicknamed Big Ronnie for his size. Did you think he was handsome? I did. Oh, and that didn't even make you interested in this case more? (laughs) No, no, dude, this guy's a piece of shit. Uh, (laughs) I mean, you do have a type. Um, Louise Marie Brigante took notice of this strapping lad and the pair started a relationship. However, Louise's Italian parents, Michael and Angela Brigante did not approve of this relationship. 
I need to figure out this is in the oh, way. Are you going to have your little eyeballs turkey peek over the barn roof? <laughs> Something. This is not working out because I need to be close <laughs> enough. But this is like blocking my vision, man. However, Louise's Italian parents, Michael and Angela Brigante, did not approve of this relationship. Michael, Louise's father, worked at a Brooklyn Buick dealership, Kings County Buick, where he was a really good, successful car salesman. Around 1949, the car dealership changed owners, and it was renamed to Mid-County Buick. Around 1956, he left this car dealership and became part of a General Motors franchisee and opened Brigante Carl Buick. So were they rich? Yeah. I was say, why does it always seem like car dealership people from like back in the day were loaded? Yeah, right. I know. They had high hopes and expectations for their daughter, Louise. She attended a private all-girls Catholic school, and they paid her tuition for her schooling to help her get a good education because they only wanted the best for their daughter. But against Michael and Angela's protest, Ronald and Louise DeFeo got married in 1951. They lived in a really tiny, cramped apartment on very little income. Michael Brigante was so angry with the marriage that he severed all ties with his daughter, Louise. It was speculated that Louise was actually pregnant at the time of the marriage to Ronald, which coming from a devout Catholic upscale family, this only angered Michael and Angela. In 1951, the DeFeos welcomed their first son, Ronald Joseph DeFeo Jr., who eventually was nicknamed Butch by his grandfather. Soon after his birth, Michael and Angela made amends with their daughter and son-in-law. Five years after the firstborn son arrived, they welcomed their second child, a daughter named Dawn Teresa DeFeo. Years down the line, they welcomed three more children, Allison Louise DeFeo, Mark Gregory DeFeo, and John Matthew. Ronald Sr. eventually got a job with his father-in-law at the Buick dealership as a service manager, and Michael Brigante made sure Ronald was paid extremely well to make sure Ronald Sr.'s growing family was well cared for. So Big Ronnie on the outside appeared to be a church-going family man, but behind closed doors, he was angry and abusive, taking most of his abuse out on Ronnie and Louise. So wait, is this the guy that disowned his daughter for a bit? Michael Brigante was Louise's father. Ronnie, Big Ronnie, is the husband of Louise. Oh, okay. So the guy that her dad didn't want her to marry is a piece of shit. So her dad was spot on. Yes. Okay. Um, so Ronald Sr., I'm just going to refer to him as Big Ronnie. So Big Ronnie was all around not a nice guy, or so it shared during court trial testimony. There were issues in the DeFeo household being speculated that Big Ronnie was abusive from the very beginning. Louise's brother even witnessed Big Ronnie get annoyed with Butch's crying picked up his son and punched him in the face, knocking him across the room into a wall, then picks up a chair and throws it at his son. And the chair hits the wall above Butch and just barely missed hitting him. He was only two. Dude, that'd make me murder someone. Yeah. In 1963, Louise was fed up with the threats from Big Ronnie that he was going to kill her and the abuse against her and their son, Butch that she left Ronnie. He was absolutely devastated that she left and he wrote her a song that was all about his great love for her and his children. He swore everything was going to change. Mm -hmm. 
Exactly. And actually in this documentary, there was, I think he was a psychologist, but he's like, if somebody says they're going to change, do not listen. Because if they were actually going to change, they wouldn't have to tell you they are going to change. They would show you they were going to. Uh, yep. Yeah. Actions speak louder than words. That's why I really don't care what somebody says. I only care what I see them do. Yeah, exactly. So Louise, of course, went back to him and they fell into the same routine. Living in a tight Brooklyn apartment, they decided it was time to move. And this is when they bought their house on Amityville for $65,000. In 1965, the DeFeos closed on their house with the help of Michael and Angela Brigante, so Louise's parents. Ronnie even named the house High Hope, as this was what he believed this home would bring them. And this is where the family lived for the following nine years. Butch was 14 at the time and was attending Amityville High School. Butch would get a job, but he was never really able to hold a job for long periods of time due to him missing too much work. Around 1972, Butch went to work for his grandfather, Michael Brigante, at the Buick dealership, and he was always sent out to do like various jobs for the business, but never had an actual set job or even a job description because he had no motivation to work. Like he was lazy. This was partially due to the fact that his father would buy him everything, new cars. Even though he was abusive? So yeah, I, I think that that's probably one of those. He's showing his love through materialistic things. Mm. So he would buy him new cars, give him cash, but it basically came at a price. They would all get physically abused and beat up at home. And then Ronnie's way of showing love to his kids after he beat them was to buy them things and give them money. In the early 1970s, Butch was only 17 at the time, but he met a young musician named Geraldine Romando, who was 23. She was singing in the bars in New York City, and Butch and his friends went into the bar and watched her sing. Butch was loud and obnoxious and tried to talk to Geraldine, and she was having none of it. She didn't care to meet him or talk to him. He bragged about living in a mansion. He flashed large wads of cash around and she told him he basically disgusts her and she walked off. But after a couple times of him showing up to the bars that she was singing at, he would do like small gestures, like putting roses on her seat that really got her somewhat interested and willing to give him a chance. And he may have been cocky, but he was a decent enough gentleman to her. Butch took her home to meet his parents. And this is back to the house that he bragged so much about. They had a really nice pool in the backyard and they actually had a pool party and it was great until big Ronnie decided to come out to the pool where they're all having this pool party. And he threw a cherry bomb in the pool, which upset everyone. So everybody got out of the pool. So after everyone left, Butch decided to get revenge on his dad, who was laying on a little floaty in the pool, floating around, and Butch threw a cherry bomb in the pool under his dad's float, which caused his dad's float to explode. (laughs) And this enraged Big Ronnie. He chased- Is it not fun when you're the butt end of the joke? (laughs) No, it's not. He chased Butch to the front yard and beat him right there in the front yard. So all the neighbors and everybody got to see What a little fucking baby. Yeah. Butch's friends eventually were actually too scared to come over to the house because the dad was so abusive. 
He was even said to have beat the mother in front of their friends. So Butch basically had an extremely abusive father and a passive mother. Butch having a troubled childhood led to substance abuse. As an adult, he not only lashed out at his father, but even threatened him with a gun, which again, in the documentary, it actually talked about this, where he held a gun to his dad's head and said that um, he was going to kill him because Big Ronnie was abusing the mom. And it said that Butch held a gun to his dad's head and told him that if he ever did it again, he would kill him. And they actually said they don't believe this happened because if it had happened where apparently Butch pulled the trigger, but the gun didn't work, they said Big Ronnie would have basically killed Butch for trying to kill him. So they don't believe this happened. We don't really know. This is just one of the accounts that it says this is how abusive he was. The parents hoped letting him live at home with them with a weekly allowance would help, but it really didn't. Bush began heavily drinking, frequenting Henry's bar, and it was this chaotic, abusive upbringing that led us full circle back to the night of the murders. Earlier in the day, Bush left work and went to Henry's bar. He kept calling home, but nobody was answering the phone, so he complained to the other patrons at the bar about it. He eventually left the bar only to return at 6.30 a.m. when he yelled, you've got to help me. I think my mother and father are shot. He was able to talk a handful of patrons in the bar to come back to his house with him to see if his parents were even still alive. They all got in Butch's car and he drove them back to the home. Butch refused to go back in the home, so he waited outside while the rest of the people he just drove there went inside. They made their way to the second floor of the house and entered the parents, Ronald Sr. and Louise DeFeo's bedroom turned on the lights and found that they had both been shot in the back twice each and they were both deceased. One of the men, Joey Yeswitz, sorry, I don't know how to say that. Joey Yeswitz went downstairs to the phone and called 911. The Amityville Police Department arrived to the home and did their initial walkthrough, which confirmed there were six victims in the home. Ronald Sr., Louise, the two younger sisters, Dawn and Allison, who were 18 and 13, and the two younger brothers, Mark and John, who were only 12 and nine. That is so sad. sad. So sad. It was the Suffolk County Homicide Department that would take over the lead of the investigation, and detectives questioned Butch DeFeo and his friend Bobby Kelsky. The official version that was announced was that Butch would be safeguarded at the police station. During an interview, it was asked why he was safeguarded. And the response to this was that there are six dead family members and they don't know why. He was taken to Suffolk County headquarters and was questioned further. He was extremely cooperative and he even stayed the night there on a cot. When he was woken up, he was told by the detectives that they think they got the guy. Where he was then read his rights and booked into jail. (laughs) So we think we've got the guy. We're going to need you to stand up and put your hands behind your back. (laughs) So. He actually confessed to what he had done, but his defense would later be to go for an insanity plea. DeFeo claimed he was guided by malevolent voices in his head and couldn't control his behavior. It was with these intriguing claims and the murder themselves that spawned the notion that the Amityville house was haunted and this family was victims of the house's evil presence. As the story is told, Butch was in the second floor TV room in the family home watching Castle Keep. Butch claimed there were voices in his head urging him to kill. And some believe to this day that he was indeed hearing evil spirits that still reside in the Amityville house. 
His attorney, Bill Weber, says Butch had taken drugs and was watching a war movie alone in that room. The end of the movie, he thought he heard his family in the other room conspiring to kill him. He said then a hooded female demon with black hands brought him a rifle, so he went ahead and shot everybody. He left the TV room, went up to his parents' room, and shot his mother and father each twice. Then moving room by room, shooting his younger brothers and sister until he completed the murderous rampage by making his way up to the third floor of the house and shooting the final member, 18-year-old sister Dawn DeFeo, who was still asleep in her bed. That's crazy. None of them woke up with all those gunshots going off. Yes. So he claims after he shot them, all family members lie dead in their beds, shot with a rifle at around 3.15 a.m., They were all positioned on their stomachs. There were no signs of struggles from any of the victims, nor that any of them had been drugged. No local reports of gunshots had been reported, with the only sign of anything even being wrong was the family dog barking. He did admit to having taken a bath and redressing and then let detectives know where he got rid of crucial evidence, like his bloody clothing and the shotgun, and then going to work as usual around 6.30 a.m., However, Big Ronnie never arrived to work that day. Butch actually gave multiple stories of what happened the night of the murders. And something that is so odd about all this is the gun he used could have been heard three to four blocks away, yet nobody heard anything. None of the victims even made any attempt to escape. They were all found face down in their beds with their hands up, almost as if they were staged, yet none of them were. So that is weird because I know shotguns are really loud. They're really loud. Yeah. Because that's how many shots he did on his mom and dad. Mm-hmm. And then it's like Dawn. Well, was... Shotguns only have like two bolts in them, two at a time. I have no idea. But I yes. have no idea either, but I feel like you only, you put like two in the barrel, cock it up. Oh yeah. I don't know. Maybe. But yeah. So none of them, none of them even woke up. So Bill Weber, Butch's attorney, decided on a plea of insanity. He interviewed Butch on the events that transpired that fateful night. And a strange series of events would lead to speculation on who was actually behind the murders. Butch had claimed at one point that his sister Dawn actually committed the murders. And during a struggle with the shotgun, he accidentally shot her. He also claimed Don killed their father and his mother killed all the children, claiming he wasn't even living at the home at the time. He was living with Geraldine, his wife, and his mother called and asked him if he could come help break up a fight between Don and their father. The judge denied these motions, writing, and I quote, I find the testimony of the defendant overall to be false and fabricated. The judge goes on to say that Butch signed a lengthy written statement describing in detail his activities and how he lived with his family and that he was working for his father so they would just ride to work together. Butch was found guilty on six counts of second degree murder on October 14th, 1975 and was sentenced to 25 years. The sentenced to just 25 years for all of those? 25 years to life what does that mean oh yeah i don't know forever is like, that each guys no it just said he was sentenced to 25 years to life did he ever get out no and he just he just died last year but no mm-hmm. he, he stayed in that whole time the amityville house stayed empty for 18 months 
until George and Kathleen Lutz purchased the Amityville house for a steal of a deal at an incredibly low price of $80,000. Gosh, I wish you could get a house that cheap now. Dude, you couldn't even buy like a mobile home for $80,000. Nope. George and Kathy married in July of 1975. Kathy had three children. George and Kathy each had their own home, but they wanted a home of their own to start a fresh new life with their family together. A lot of the DeFeo family's furniture was actually left inside the house and was included in the final price of the sale of the home for just 400 extra dollars. They got all all the DeFeo's furniture. A friend of the Lutz's family knew what had happened at the home and urged George to have the house blessed. George knew a Catholic priest named... Father Mancuso, so sorry if I said that wrong, which from what I read, it seems like his name had been changed to protect his identity. So I'm not sure if this is the actual name. The They change it to something that people can't pronounce. Like, I mean, if you're going to change it, just change it to Father Frank or something. Well, I also saw a thing that said that it, Father Ray. So I, I don't know. We're going to say Father Mancuso because that's what I see the most. He agreed to do a blessing on the home. He arrived to the home on December 18, 1975, while the Lutzes were in the process of unpacking their belongings. When he flicked the first holy water and began praying, this is when a masculine voice demanded he get out. When Father Mancuso initially left, he didn't tell the Lutzes what he had heard. But he did eventually call George and advise him to stay out of the second floor former bedroom of Mark and John Matthew DeFeo's room. But this room was just going to be used as Kathy's sewing room. But this call ended up getting cut short due to static. After Father Mancuso left the house, he ended up getting really sick with a fever and chills and he got blisters on his hands. At first, George and Kathy didn't experience anything out of the ordinary. George Lutz eventually was said to wake up every morning at 3.15, which was around the time that Butch actually carried out the murders of his family. There was even said to be a pig-like creature with red eyes staring down at George and his son Daniel from an upstairs window. That's creepy. Super creepy. George also claims that he had awoken in the middle of the night to find Kathy levitating above their bed. But in mid-January 1976, Kathy and George decided to bless the house on their own. This ended up being the final night in the home. They claimed to smell strange odors, see green slime oozing out of the walls and keyholes, and experienced cold spots in certain areas of the house. But the couple ultimately refused to give full accounts of what happened on the night because they say it was too frightening. Like if that was me, my lips would be a flapping in the wind (laughs) to let everybody know what was happening. Now on Wikipedia, it has a criticism and controversy tab which is super awesome. Here it actually accounts how Father Mancuso actually 
claimed he never experienced anything weird when he went to the house and he never heard a voice telling him to get out. The claims that the locks, doors, and windows were all damaged by the entities of the home were said to be false by the next homeowners, Jim and Barbara Cromarty. I am saying that wrong and I'm so sorry. <laughs> they bought the home for 55000 in March of 1977. So it sounds like the Lutzes made up a big old tall tale of what's going on inside the house. However, I don't know. I wasn't there. I wonder why. For money. Mm. Because they knew they could sell the story. William Weber was the attorney for Butch DeFeo. Weber went to the Lutzes and told them, we can make your story public and make money. So they were originally working together with a team of writers to write a book together on their accounts of the hauntings. But the Lutzes eventually ended that agreement with Weber and worked with the author Jay Anson as he offered them a 50-50 split of the earnings. William Weber, again, who is a defense attorney for Butch DeFeo, said he knows that the book is a complete and total hoax, and they created this horror story over many bottles of wine. So... This story was so incredible and still to this day is one of the most widely known horror stories told as a true story. George maintained that the events in the book were mostly true. And I'm thinking like with the movies, obviously creative liberties were taken and they were mostly true. Like the part where we lived in the house. Yeah. Obviously a family moving into a house where a family was murdered probably wouldn't sell very many books or make a very good movie, but hauntings, slime coming out of the walls, people levitating, that's going to sell. George and Kathy Lutz even took a lie detector test and these tests indicated that they were actually telling the truth. We know that you can fake those. We've already discussed how me and you would both fail those. Mm-hmm. But they did pass, which which might go to show if they could make up this big giant story that maybe they're not fully all there in the head. I don't know, though. So I'm not going to say that they're just big liars and made up this whole thing. I don't know. Uh, Butch claims that Bill Weber and the Lutzes actually concocted the plan of saying the house was haunted. He also said during an interview that he personally knew the Lutzes really well, and he used to get them drugs all the time. So the Lutzes knew the DeFeos. Every homeowner since the Lutzes claimed that there's nothing weird about the house. The Amityville house officially sold in February of 2017 to an undisclosed owner for $605,000, which was $200,000 less than the original asking price. It had been previously owned by four other families since the murders, one of which had the address changed to 108 Ocean Avenue. So Hmm. Butch DeFeo murdered his family, originally claimed that this entity told him to, but then he said, no, it didn't. I was actually just on drugs. Then the Lutzes moved in for only 28 days by claiming they were absolutely terrorized by the entity that lives inside the house. 
And then all the other owners say there was absolutely nothing weird about the house. So that's weird. I don't was, know. Is this at all what you pictured this story being? Nope. So because so many people were requesting that this story get covered, this is for lack of a better word, because I'm not really sure how to word this. I was really excited to cover this case because I do want to cover ghost, alien, hauntings, creepy things. Yeah. Paranormal. Yeah. Paranormal also. And so I was like, this will be good because I know that it has the unfortunate murder of the DeFeo family, but it also has hauntings. I've obviously seen the Ryan Reynolds Amityville horror. That's the one I've seen, but I didn't know it was based off of a real story. I just thought it was a movie. So that's what I was expecting as I started researching. And then as I was researching, I was kind of like, huh? Because in the Amityville horror movies, do they even talk about there being people murdered there? I don't remember. I'm going to rewatch it actually. I feel like they do. Like that's not something I knew. Yeah. So see, I feel like I thought maybe there was something, but I, I haven't, I think I saw it when it first came out. So it's been a while. I'm going to rewatch it just because. I Yeah. I saw it in theaters. I'm pretty sure I saw it in theaters. So I don't really know the movie because I didn't like it. I remember being very scared by it. So when I did this originally, I was super excited. And all this made me realize is I don't think very many people know the full story. I think that they know the movie version, that there's all these creepy hauntings. The actual story of it, I I think. Is that there's not all these creepy hauntings. It's just tall some, yeah, a couple that wanted money. Yeah. So with that, could you ever truly feel safe in a house with so much dark history and horror stories attached to it? What Hell do you know? Yeah. Right. What do you think is the hauntings no. of the Amityville house at 112 Ocean Avenue, a real account of demonic possession and hauntings, or just a couple of people trying to make a couple bucks off a of tragedy. Thanks for listening to Grim Curiosity. We are Calliope and Jane, and we will be back next week with another episode. I'll see you next time. Goodbye. 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 Next time. Later. See you later. Bye. Good night. Good night. Because we record like one o'clock in the morning. Bye. Yeah. Eyeballs hurt. (laughs) Eyeballs (laughs) tired. Goodbye. (laughs) Goodbye.